out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This is going to be part two and almost part three of my interview with Alan Rankin from The Associates and also um, his solo work and also lecturing and the uh, record label that he was involved with as well. So this was recorded over two other sessions, but I've stuck them together with a very professional sort of amount of editing. So there's probably a weird jump somewhere in the about 40, 50 minute minute mark where we finish one and then we start another. Anyway, you get the gist. So look, me and Alan, this is it. This is great stuff. Um, So we get back for round two of this interview. Um, and we were just talking about various record labels and stuff like that and um, wanted to know, this is the build-up to it, by the way, um, where he's just finished the band and is about to embark on a solo career. And after chatting about that and getting back into the groove, Alan picks it up. Alan, take it away. I've got to say right from the, from the get-go, David, you know, some of my, you know, I can't sing for toffee. <laughs> you know, f- singers are a breed. They're yes. a breed apart. Um, it's not just—it's not just them wanting to be front men or whatever. You know, if they've got the singing in them, then they've had that inner voice in them since you know, since five, six, seven years old. Yes, that is- you know, and I was never like that. <laughs> I think they spent a lot of time in front of a mirror, didn't they? Sort of. Rehearsing. Yeah, you know, with anything that came to hand, a hairbrush, anything. Yes, I know. Yeah. They all did it. They all posed. Did you, I mean, I know from talking to, you know, quite a lot of people, leave, you know, finishing a band is often a bit strange and it, gives, it takes a few, a period of time of adjustment. Did it, um, how did you sort of find that next couple of years with, um, yes, after... Difficult. Difficult. Um, uh, let me see. Um, uh, like I say, Bill didn't, uh, he just said, I didn't want to do it, which means I don't, I don't want to do it. And that meant this world tour and everything being mapped out in front of him and having to have a timetable that was virtually a year long. Right. And it's just not the way Bill you know, could ever do anything, you know, to be told or not be told. No one told us to do anything. But yes, we had booked a studio at Compass Point in NASA. You know, if it's good enough for Robert Palmer, good enough for me. Yes. Um, I think there was a couple of bands did that. Um, I think maybe the Spandau Ballet did it there. I'm not sure. Um but anyway, we booked that, and then Seymour Stein, who ran Sire Records in America, mm. he picked that because we hadn't signed for North America. Uh, so we knew that by the time we had three hits, then we could, you know, get a much bigger advance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, Seymour, bless his heart, um, a very, very clever man and an encyclopedic knowledge of music and the music industry. And, uh, you know, so he'd set uh, the tour up, he'd paid off all the radio stations, you know, 
all the braves, you know, that you had to do. Mm. Um, and then Bill just said, as we were sitting in Langan's Brasserie in London, no, I, I didn't even want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just the end for me. You know, and I can remember later on in the evening, um, we'd gone to, oh, what was, what was that? Steve Strange Club? Well, kind of, was it the Ritz or something? I know, the, the Camden Palace. The Camden Palace, right, yes. Yeah, we went there. Yes. And um, Bill said, he whispered to me, he said, could we not just be a studio band then? You know, and I just said, look, this is all I've worked for, you know, since I was 10, 11 years old. And, you know, I'm 24 now. And you want to fuck it all up? No, not doing it. Yes. So, yes, the period of adjustment after that, it took me about, I'd say, seven months. Um, and, you know, I went a bit off the rails and a bit haywire. And then I got a phone call from Paul Haig's manager at oh. that time. And he said, are you still tinkling the ivories? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm doing guitar, keyboards, all the rest of it. And so I ended up producing three albums for Paul Haig. Right, yes. Was that with Alan Horn? Was he with Alan Horn at this stage? Um, no, I don't think he was ever with Alan Horn. Um, the guy's name then was Alan Camp Campbell. Right. And I think that's Alan with two L's and Camp Bell. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, he doesn't, you know, he didn't manage him for long, but at that point, he did. Yes. And uh, so I met up with Paul, and he said, um, we've got to go and reproduce um, something that Paul had been in New York, and he was being produced by Alex Sadkin. I don't know whether you uh, know that name. No, I don't. S A D K I N Sadkin, Alex Sadkin. I think he, um, among other things, I think he did the Thompson Twins. Right, I got you. You know all that whole mean now. Yes, I know. You know that type of thing. Um, Yes. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm getting some interference here. I think it was, a, yeah, that was a line. Yeah, so so there was a bit, I mean, that 82, 83 period, there was a lot of very clean, polished pop, wasn't there? Top of the Pops was just full of happy people clapping along with balloons and streamers. Yes, you know, um, when I think about Top of the Pops, I mean, it's just, it was, you could tell even then it was beginning to die a death. Um, but anyway... Back, back to Alex Sadkin in New York. Um, Paul was signed to Ladies to Crepuscu. Oh, yes. But money was coming directly from Chris Blackwell, the owner of Island Records. Yeah. And so he basically bankrolled Paul's uh, uh, recording and mixing sessions uh, in New York, which, you know, cost a pretty penny. And... Uh, Paul was, uh, he was asked to do a show in Manchester um, and he didn't know how to reproduce it. 
So we had to re-record it again. Yes. And Paul didn't have a clue how to do it. So that's where I came in. Wow, that's, um, that was handy. Did it, um, did it sort of save your life at this stage, as sort of having a project to sort of to work on, um, to, to try and distract yourself? No, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as that. But I do remember it being, you know, pretty gut-wrenching, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, because um, I think I had one more thing. What was it? Um, oh, I did the Cocktail Twins. Okay. Um, yeah, because that was, must it, have been their early-ish period of... That was, like, probably late 82. Hmm. I don't know if... Because um, Pearly Drew was, Jobs uh, Drops came out around 81, 82, oh, didn't it? what was it? Uh, God, I can't even remember. Um, yeah. So when it you... Was a I was going to say, when you heard Copto Twins, did that, um, and Liz Fraser's voice, was that... Because that was quite a radical sound at the time, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, and uh, what's the guy's name? Robin Guthrie. Dear old Robin. Yeah, he, he, you know, he was, um, he was experimenting a lot. And I can remember them. They came to my parents' house in Linlithgow because they stayed in Grangemouth, which is about nine miles away. And um, I'd heard Liz, Liz's voice, and I said, I said to myself, with a producer's hat on, I said, um, I don't know whether this, this girl can cut it, but it became glaring, glaringly obvious that um, that's just the way she sang. Yes. <laughs> you know, and there was no point in saying to her, I can't really make out what you're singing. You know, there's no diction there. There's no enunciation. There was just no point in doing that. And I think uh, I did three tracks with them. Um, um, and it wasn't Pally Dewdrops, it was Peppermint Pig. Oh, yes, because it was around Garland's had come out, the, uh, the first album, but they, uh, they might have brought a single out before that, yeah. actually. So yes. I'd done that, and then, um, uh, uh, and then yeah, I, I went back up to Scotland, and, uh, you know, still licking my wounds from the, the whole associates thing. And, um, yeah, so I ended up doing three albums with Paul Haig. Um, not in consecutive years. I think I did one in, ooh, 84, another one in 85, and then another one in 89. Right. And... That's uh, the one I did in '89 was called Chained, and that's what got Paul signed to um, uh, Circa Records. Right, I've got you. Yeah, so because I think he'd been on Postcard Records, that's probably why I was thinking of Alan Horn, the famous Alan Horn. Yeah, I think maybe he had a foray into that, but I think that was more Joseph Key. Yes, um, it was, was Joseph Key, wasn't Malcolm it? Malcolm Ross on guitar, and Malcolm. Um, joined Orange Juice and they were on Postcard. Yeah, classic. So there might have been a slight foray with um, Postcard Records, but nothing very much. Yes, I think... I mean, put it this way, um, there's only about 43 miles separate Edinburgh and Glasgow, but Paul, like, he, he had a distinct aversion to Glasgow. 
<laughs> just very strange. And um, um, he just said, oh, no, I don't fancy that. I can remember we did one date in Edinburgh and one date in Glasgow, and Paul gleefully said at the end of uh, the, the second night, well, that's the end of the tour. <laughs> you know, he just... Um, yeah, he didn't like Glasgow at all. Yes. And did you, I mean, at that stage, just briefly, I mean, because I, I, I mean, indie pop really became a thing after punk and post-punk and there was the new romantic goth. But then, you know, 83, the Smiths come along for five years. Indie pop was certainly a big thing, wasn't it? And I just wondered how you were looking at that, the kind of the rise of bands like the Smiths and the June Brides and the Go-Betweens and the Wedding Present. Was that something... Because your sound with, with the associates have been pretty sharp and shiny and um, quite clean. And then you had this kind of slightly jingly-jangly world and, and, you know, lots of little record labels or record labels appear in here, there mm. and everywhere. I just wondered if you came across, you know, things like Creation Records or Kitchenware um, Records or Factory, you know, people well, like that. You know, whenever I saw Alan McGee, I mean, he was completely off his tits. right. You know, um, it's just a fact of life. He was off his tits for about a good 10, 12 years. Um, uh, and I think it was just anything and everything uh, that he was ingesting. Right, yeah. You know, I, I don't think he was mainlining heroin, but he was doing everything. Um, yeah, as far as I can remember a time in 86, 87... And I counted the bands that start, started off with, you know, small independent labels and were now getting signed to major labels with, you know, quarter of a million pounds um, um, invested in them. And the number of Scottish bands was 36. You know, that was just unheard of. Yes. So as soon as these bands did anything... Um, I mean, for, for instance, I can remember being in a club in Edinburgh and Love and Money, who were headlining, they were already signed to Phonogram or one of their imprint labels, and supporting them was Hue and Cry. And they signed with Circa Records. Yes. Um, and it was Ashley Newton at Cir uh, Circa Records who also signed Paul Haig, and who also signed Bill, Billy. Um, uh, it was him that got um, the, the horn section on the... Uh, uh, what was that single by Hue and Cry? God, to be honest, I, I, I didn't follow their career at all, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just... um, if Hewing. you look at... Um, if you take away the horn section from the record... I think it was maybe called Labour of Love or something. Human cry, what's that? And it was, you know, it was meant to be, I suppose, political. And, um, yeah, but as soon as you got that horn section, different animal. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, there was an awful lot of bands, some of which were really quite rubbish, but there were, I can remember this as well. Yeah. I'd go, uh, I'd go to see a band, and I knew a couple of the, you know, the, the very lowest rung of A&R people from, uh, from major labels, and they all just went around like a pack. You know, there'd be six or seven competing labels, 
and you know, and I could, um, I could see in the sidelines um, that they, uh, they would kind of like give a nod and a wink to each other and say, "Nah, this lot's a bit crap," and they would just go on to the next one. You know, it was kind of like a Benny Hill sketch. <laughs> you know, yes. with all the eight men. You know, it was like that. And then after they'd seen three bands at three different venues, then they'd all go and get off their tits. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I have heard one or two musicians who got called into the office and was, I don't know, given the CD of the latest big, thing and saying this is what we want next and the musician going yeah but that's not who we are and we'll never be that that sound you know it's almost like they suddenly saw what was happening and want, wanted to sign that those bands yes or so, create you know, there was a time where um when anything scottish you know they wanted to know yes um i guess deacon blue happened during that time as well didn't they i suppose they had started, yeah i think so they were they i were, mean uh, that was about but, 86 you know, again, 87 yeah yeah, that was Deacon Blue. Yeah, they were definitely and and um, Simple Minds had been huge as well in the mid eighties, hadn't they? So yeah, absolutely they, huge. General Jim, um, so. you know, they'd worked with John Lecky. They, uh, they were produced by oh, what was their biggest hit? Um, a guy called Pete Walsh. Uh, that was Greg Walsh's uh, brother. Right. And they were both uh, producers. Yes. Um, so. Yeah. They were huge. They got, uh, yeah. yeah. They were signed to Virgin. They were on Arista at first, then they went to Virgin. That's right. Yeah, I think it was the film The Breakfast Club that really brought them into the mainstream and then Jim 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 looked for a long time. Yeah, I don't their early stuff was quite good, so yeah. You know, but that wasn't their song, Don't You Forget About Me. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That yes. Was written by uh, John Fogerty. That's right. He of um, oh God, who was John Fogerty in? Um, oh I don't know. Was it very Credence Clearwater? Yes, I'm not sure. I know. This is like pop quiz, isn't it? Actually, at the moment. <laughs> so, yes, that's the man. Yeah. And he still, and he, he still has a residence in Las Vegas and um, plays occasionally. Uh, I can tell you. Um, see, the whole pop quiz thing is such a shambles. Um, of course, um, they've got to make it look semi-real uh, so that you know what you're talking about. Um, but they can't just say, here's the answer. Now, act surprised um, <laughs> that you got it right. What they used to do was just give you um, kind of um, five minutes of take with 20-second uh, excerpts um, of the the songs and the bands. So... You know, you were still guessing, but no, not really. <laughs> yeah. To, to look so that's how pop quiz worked. To look that spontaneous and casual, yes, you have to rehearse quite a lot. So look, then, I mean, after your experience with Paul and and sort of still sort of probably dealing with the sort of the, the kind of the, the, the dust settling with the associates, then when did you think, right, that's it, 86, I'm going to make an album, the world begins to... Age. Well, yeah, well, I mean, that was, uh, again, I almost became like an in-house producer for Ladies to Crepuscule. So I moved to Brussels. And um, 
I was producing Anna Domino. Oh my um, God, I, was... I love her. She did a song called Lake, which just blows my mind. But it's, it's yeah, right. I never produced that one. No, but um, I have to say she's that was beautiful. Her, and her, um, her partner Michelle Delory, oh. uh, who she subsequently married, and she now lives in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, that Lake song is great. Yeah, really, beautiful. really good song. Yes. So I did an album for her. I did an album for Winston Tong from Tuxedo Moon um, and various other bi- uh, bits and bobs. But um, then uh, Crepit School said, well, why don't you do an album, Alan? I'm thinking to myself, for fuck's sake, I don't sing, you know. So I've got to admit, I was doing it for the money. Yeah. No two ways about it. By that time, I had one son who was about six months old. Um, and um, I had to put food on the table. And, uh, you know, there we go. So the world begins to look her age, yeah. Yeah. Because My could... singing's fucking terrible. And what I, what I had to do, um, whether it was with that album or... The next album, which was done on Virgin... Yeah, She Loves Me Not. Um, she Loves Me Not. So there were some songs that had been on um, The World Begins to Look Her Age and then all these other songs. And basically what I had to do, uh, David, was basically surround myself with female singers that could harmonise at the drop of a hat and make try and make me sound half-decent. Yes. So I got, um, I had listened to, um, oh, Slave to the Rhythm by, uh, and that was Trevor Horn producing. Yes. Uh, you know, the Grace jo- Jones album. Yes, Grace Jones. Yes, we loved that one. That was a classic. Yeah, so you got... Who that, did was you... a, that was a classic. So I just looked, um, I looked at the sleeve notes and there was this bird called Tessa Niles. And she was married to Richard Niles who did the orchestration for Slave to the Rhythm. Right. And she was just brilliant. She came over to Brussels for one day, stayed the night and left in the morning. But by that time, she'd um, done five tracks with me, five songs. And she harmonized, double-tracked, everything. Pitch perfect a lot. Yes. I think, uh, to be honest, I think she played with David Bowie at Live Aid. I think she, the name rings a bell. And I think. Yeah, that was right. She was the blonde one. She was the blonde one. And the other one called Helena Springs. Right. And and she she went out with Robert De Niro for a while. The Helena Springs uh, woman. Right, okay. Yeah, I just remember. I think Tessa's even done a book, but I do remember sort of wondering. How she got the gig. But anyway, she got it and did it. And um, Yeah, I mean, she was easily the best session singer in Britain. Easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, yes. So that's, what, that's what I had to do for uh, The World Begins to Look Her Age and, um, uh, and She Loves Me Not. Yeah. Um, and then what else was it? But then, because as the, as the 80s, I mean, your last one, which is quite, because the, the second one, She Loves Me Not on Virgin, has this kind of classic kind of 50s image. And then the big, the big picture sucks, which is back on um, 
De, de, yes, the Be- Belgium label, which I'll mispronounce. But anyway, Ladies du Crepuscule. Beautifully, yeah. yes. That that's that's always good. Yeah, I, I mean, mean that that was um, recorded in and mixed in nine days. Yeah. Were you in a? Uh, was it kind of? Can you remember what the atmosphere like was like when you were recording that one? Because it's it's got. Oh, a sh- it was very very in- intense. Sorry, what, what were you going to say, David? I was just going to say, because the album cover, it has a bit of a... It's a bit... Um, you wouldn't get away with that now, would you? Let's face it. Oh, God. Look, um, <laughs> the big picture. You know what I mean by the big picture? That's kind of like if you were in America, the big picture would be the white picket fence, da-da-da-da-da. Yes. And I was saying, fuck all that. The big picture sucks. And I didn't want tits on it. I wanted uh, the full vag shot. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> a, but they wouldn't do it. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, they just stuck with the top half, didn't they? Yes. You so know. It's got to be done. So that's what I wanted. But um, no, they wouldn't go with that. I don't blame them, really. Um, um, and what else? Yeah, I mean, there were parts of that that I really, really enjoyed. Um, Shambok, uh, the first track, loved it. Um, and uh, it was just basically me and an engineer. That was it. Yeah. And I, I just went from guitar to keyboard, keyboard to guitar, anything. And uh, what else? Um did you, um, I mean, at that stage, because, I mean, doing three albums in three years is quite an intense kind of turnover. Um, yeah. Which, you know, not many people manage to do and stay stay sane. I mean, at this stage, I mean, kind of the music scene had changed a lot. There was a new, you know, like we had the shiny Trevor Horn production, then we had that, I suppose, I don't know, there was a bit of an independent sound. And then towards the end of the 80s, the dance scene started with ecstasy appearing. Oh, God, yeah, I just... I couldn't stand any of that. And then grunge, um, and then the grunge scene started from Seattle, which also kind of put in another twist to the musical genre. Yeah. Maybe. So I just wondered Nirvana, what... Nirvana, yeah, Green Day, you know, I just like... Ugh. Nirvana I could appreciate um, just because of the sheer, you know, um, angriness. Yes. And, and, that um, was uh, there. Did you, I mean, were you also sort of looking over your kind of slightly shoulder at sort of what was happening with Bill and the associates at this stage and his, because there was a lot of different lineups of the band or new members coming in. Did that kind of feel quite strange seeing, because I did an interview once with Fast Eddie from Motorhead who felt really sort of like getting, he felt kicked out of the band and, and it was like, but that's my band, man. You know, you can't kick me out. You know, I am, you know, and it's like, no, you've gone now, Eddie. Sorry about that. I just wondered well, if you... Were... Said he, was he the original guitar player? Yeah, pretty much. I think there might have been one, but not one in the sense of recording yeah. any of the albums. Did so Brian far... Robertson, did Brian Robertson from, from Thin Lizzy not step into the breach? He stepped in after Eddie had finished or had gone. But he, yeah. it, but he felt it was kind of his band and he never saw life without being in the band. So... It must have been very difficult. It must just... have been bloody terrible from, because I'd known Brian Robertson since uh, I was, oh, 15. Yes. Um, he went to the same school as me, and he was in the sixth year. Yes. And all I can remember uh, being in a rehearsal room with him, 
up on the top floor of this um, Eastwood High School, and the guy was a brilliant piano player. And he was saying to me, I was playing, I think, Black Sabbath uh, at, at, the, uh, at that time. And he was like saying, no, oh, you should be doing this. And he was playing Wishbone Ash, for God's sakes. Yeah. But, you know, simplistic as it was, it taught me about harmony very, very quickly. Yes. And, and then, you know, a few weeks later, he's, you know, he's in Thin Lizzy, for God's sakes. I think they, they, they always mentioned, this is a bit irrelevant, but I think the, the Lemmy from Motorhead and also the ta- Filthy Taylor used to find some of his outfits he wore on stage not very heavy metal. I think they had an issue with Brian's clothes at times from what I've heard in interviews yeah. that they've had. They sort of thought, this, this isn't heavy metal, to quote bad news. And yes, those guys from the comic strip. But it was a bit like, come on, Brian, you can dress a bit better than that. But anyway, that's, that's yeah. slightly irrelevant for old Brian. Um, but yeah, so I just wonder, what were you looking? You think, did you have any con- um, communication with Bill at this stage? Or was it like you were no, just... No, um, um, I ran into Bill purely by accident. Um, I was staying in a flat in Edinburgh, and it was just a few doors down from a hotel called uh, the Hilton National, and before that it was called the Dragon Hour. Yes. And if I went out the back door of the flat, walked down the garden, through the garden gate, within 20 yards, I was in there out. Uh, outside bar area. So I just went in there one night and I walked through the bar to go to the toilet and lo and behold, here's Mackenzie. Yes. <laughs> um, and that was in 1989. I think he was probably doing radio promotions and media promotions for that album. Um, so he had, you know, um, uh, he was just on his own with a couple of representatives of um, the record company. Yes. Yeah, so we talked for a couple of hours, but we never really touched on, uh, on anything. Um, uh, yeah, and that was the only time I saw him until 1993. Oh, yes. Was that on a, more of a business level, or was that more of a, just an accidental... Oh, Bill, how are you? Um, no, there was um, Bill had an album out. I can't remember what it was called. Um, and there was a reviewer in Q, on Q magazine called uh, Martin Aston. And at the end of the review, he said, "Is it time to call Rankin?" Or words to that effect. Yes. Uh, and I didn't know this because my dad, um, he was, you know, he was a man of his word, but uh, he only told me this after Bill's dad had died. But um, Bill's dad had phoned my dad to get my phone number in Edinburgh because Bill's dad had seen that, um, okay. that review. Do you, 
you get yes. where I'm coming from? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So there was... and, and he'd said, but Bill can't know that I phoned you. So I'd, I had no idea of this. So it was like the two Jims, uh, James Rankin and um, Jim McKenzie. <laughs> the meeting of the two Jims. Yeah, nice. Was this the only so, time they um, ever communicated with each other? Yes. <laughs> the, 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 I mean, I don't know whether you've ever heard Broad Dundonian. By God, even for a Scotsman, it's really, really difficult. No, um, I haven't. To, to translate um, sometimes, if it's really Broad Dundonian, and Jim McKenzie, um, otherwise known as the Führer, as in Hitler, mm. um, the Führer, um, that's what Bill called him. And, um, yeah, so that was a pact that they made between themselves. And how, um, uh, how Bill's dad got my number into Bill's hand, I've got no idea. Yeah. But Bill phoned me about two weeks after that review appeared. And he said, do you fancy doing some music? And I said, yeah, sure. And we had a couple of, you know, he had some loose ends to tie up. So did I. So that was in about, oh, October of uh, 92. And then January 93, yeah, the debts were clear. And I went up to Dundee, and in the first weekend, we wrote 11 songs. Right. So that was, yeah, that was it. And did it feel... An enjoyable process, coming back together again. I'll tell you, David, it really didn't feel like it had been virtually 11 years uh, since we'd spoken. It was as if we hadn't seen each other for two or three weeks. That's how it felt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just said, I said to myself, OK, what can... What's going to like really settle Bill and I into a, a, a muse that's kind of easy? Mm. So I took on the Mick Ronson role and Bill was Bowie. And we did Stephen, You're Still Really Something as a, a response to William, It Was Really Nothing. Okay. Oh, right. I was going to say John, I'm only dancing. But no, William, It Was Really Nothing. Yeah, so um, I just did a Ronson-esque uh, riff, and within 20 minutes, we had the song done. And what album was that coming out on, or did it come out on? It, uh, it, was, it was all just going to be demos. And um, after we uh, fleshed out these 11 songs, we selected six to, to go with. Um, as uh, demos for record companies. Yes. And we got Bruce Finley, Simple Minds ex-manager, uh, to manage us. But Bill was just unmanageable. He just was. That's the way Bill is or was. Mm. Um, and um, it was like a red rag to a bull. All the record companies says, yeah, we really like this. Now prove it. Go and play live. And Bill was saying, no. Nah. 
ain't doing that. <laughs> so it came to us, you know, very shortly. By even the early summer of 93, it was done and dusted. Oh. Which was unfortunate, but that's just the way Bill was. Yeah, and has that material I, ever come out on any... Yes, yes. Um, uh, it's come out somewhere, David. I don't... I can't... I cannot recollect. No. Um, but there was at least... Yeah, there was, you know, there was four... Three or four good songs. Um, one was called Stephen, You're Still Really Something. Uh, one was called The Edge of the World. One was called International Loner. And the other one was called Fear Is My Bride. Fear Is My Bride. My God, I'll have to try and find all these songs. It's my bride. I can, I can uh, send them uh, to you, David, if you've... Got an email address. God, yeah, that would be amazing. So then, I mean, was was that the last time you ever saw Bill? Kind of, was that that period? Um, yes, the last time I saw him was in Edinburgh. And again, you know, Paul Haig is from Edinburgh. You know, they were doing a project, you know, and he was doing another project with so-and-so. And, you know, every every time I heard that word, project, I said, I was saying to myself, a project is something you do when you're in primary seven to waste time. Mm. You know, and it's just, no, this is not a project. This is my life. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's just, so it just fizzled out. We didn't have a big argument or anything, but um, I think um, Bruce Findlay, Simple Minds ex-manager um, I think Bill exasperated him and you know I would go into Bruce's office and you could tell oh god right Bruce he, he's got that look on his face <laughs> I just had a meeting with Bill just sheer frustration yes I could imagine Jesus Christ I mean, it's, um, yeah, such a shame, isn't it? But then, I mean, I mean, um, I mean, what, this is kind of, this is where you, you draw a line under, you know, releasing albums or collaborating, or projects as well. Is this, is this kind of, are you done with it all then by this stage? Um, no, I'm not done with it, but I realised that I was probably going to have to whore myself out um, so I ended up, you know, writing a, a few songs for some boy bands in the mid-90s. Right. You know, because i got to live. Absolutely. You know, so there was a band called, it was so funny, we had a, a band called 911, and I can remember um, we were in EMI's offices, you know, with the demo, etc. I think it just had three songs on it. And there was a guy there called Dave Ambrose. And I think he maybe signed Duran Duran. But he said, so what's this band, 9-11? And this was in the mid-90s. How how pathetic was that? (laughs) 
America, 9-11, oh my God. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to explain to them. No, it's not 9-11, it's 9-1-1, as in the emergency code in America. Yeah. Oh God, very, very funny. It was, um, yeah, that was never going to work, was it? A bit like when one of those... And then, I mean, just kind of... I mean, do you then... Because theoretically, well, not theoretically, you you go back into, you know, working as a lecturer. Is this is this what then foc- you focus your attention on, you know, setting up and working with students and, and um, yes? And um, uh, again, by that time I had a second son. Uh, and, you know, he was already three. My first son was six. And, um, hold on, yeah, yeah. He was six years old, some three years old, and need to make money. Yes. Um, so I took the lecturing job, but um, it wasn't a condition on uh, in any way, but part of the job was letting the students run a record label, so choosing the band or the artist. Um, we chose, uh, or rather the students chose, all I could do was guide them once they had made their decision. You know, I could have no input into their decision yes. before that. Um, and we got lucky in 96. We all heard Bell and Sebastian. Oh, and I was over the moon because yeah. I was also moonlighting at a studio um, uh, uh, called Beatbox. Right. And they used to run some government scheme so that unemployed people could get an extra £10 a week if they took part in this government scheme. Yes. And um, so I'd heard Bell and Sebastian down at this studio complex. Yeah. God, this guy is brilliant. I'm talking about Stuart Murdoch. Yes, absolutely. And then... Coincidentally, um, um, it came into um, all the hundreds of tapes or CDs that came into uh, what was the record? Uh, the record label was called Electric Honey. Of course, yes. And there is the end of part three. No, that's wrong. Part two. That's right. Anyway, this is going to be part three, which um, I'll let myself introduce the piece and then we go into the interests and information of the record label alan thank you for giving me a third day for this interview anyway david talk about the record label it's going to be fascinating but then um you'll re- the record label that um you, you sort of went oh yes we did this record label you might have heard of these bands. It's, oh my god of course yes this is this is all very exciting so it would be brilliant Yes, because this was like, two, was it 2010 that you um, sort of started the, the label or start working at the college? Oh, gosh. No, that was, um started at the college in 92. Oh, right. And, um, and we did one band, then another band, then another band. In the first, uh, the fourth year, 96, we got really lucky with Bell and Sebastian. Okay, right. So, and, the, and the, the year after that, we did Snow Patrol, and um, 
And then about three years after that, we did Biffy Clyro. Right. My God, that was absolutely fantastic. So when you started, this was like 92. This was probably, had you, had you decided or had sort of felt that the solo, the solo path was kind of getting a bit tricky? Yeah, I mean, totally tricky. Couldn't get any money. yes that is a bit of a tricky one actually and did you i mean at that stage obviously you'd been sort of in in sort of the music world for sort of probably nearly 15 years had you felt a bit like you'd had enough by then in that in in that capacity and just wanted to have a change uh well no no one wants to you know really change tack like that but it was just pure necessity you know, I had two young boys to uh, bring up. I need to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. Yes. And at, uh, at that stage, obviously, they, they, we'd had this sort of, um, I suppose, there'd been the, the indie world, you know, with the people, like I probably mentioned before, like the Smiths, and then there'd been the grunge world. Oh, and Ecstasy had come along, and bands like the Soup Dragons had gone from two-minute indie pop songs to this kind of anthemic kind of rave moments and then grunge had happened did you sort of feel 92 93 there was kind of a change again wasn't there kind of music started to come back and the the very early years of Britpop was appearing though they didn't call it Britpop yeah then. Did... I've got to, I've got to say David I mean the whole ecstasy um thing it just bored me to tears um uh, because there was all these bands with just no talent. And um, and then the whole Britpop thing. I mean, my God. Um, <laughs> Had Oasis. You... Yes, Oasis. You know, they're just um, to- totally ripping off the Beatles and then trying to say they're not. I mean, it's just awful. Had you been, because obviously when you'd started, no, not quite, because people like, you know, Creation Records and Alan had started in the early 80s, hadn't he? With Mm -hmm. He had a club in London, the the Living Room, which lots of indie bands, and they'd started Creation Records and had a lot of um, amazing bands, but obviously they didn't probably sell in fast numbers. Were you amazed when suddenly... Creation Records became the kind of mover and shaker of the of the nineties. Uh, no, no. Um, uh, you know, it was a bit of. I think um, Alan McGee was quite lucky. I mean, Primal Scream. You know, Screamadelica. What a record! Wow. You know, that was good. Yes. Yeah. Oasis. No. <laughs> So when you when you were sort of you you started the college world, had it was did it take a bit of a an adjustment to um, to step into quite a different role? And I, I suppose you know you were working with an HR department and people talking about pension plans, which must have felt quite strange after spending your early adulthood not thinking yeah. not thinking of either of those two things. And yes, national insurance numbers. You know, absolutely. I mean. Um, uh... Yeah, that took a bit of getting used to. But uh, as as far as the lecturing thing uh, went, it was just a piece of piss. Um, it was so easy because I knew a lot about all these different um, 
managerial rules, record company rules, marketing rules, promotion uh, rules. Um, and I, I seem to know it inside out. I mean, I, I never wrote anything down mm. apart from um, just the, the, uh, a bullet point. And then I, I could just talk for hours and, uh, you know, and take questions as well. Um, and quite often I'd play the devil's advocate um, to, you know, get the students kind of excited or worked up about something. Yes. Did you feel that you were something of a mentor to these kind of young, innocent, naive, but enthusiastic people who were starting yes. their, their dream? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Because, I mean, I knew that it, from my experience, especially with uh, young women, um, most of them uh, got jobs because their parents were well off and they could work for nothing. You yes. Know, that was my experience. Um, uh, and they might work for nothing for a year, maybe even two years. Um, uh, and then they'd maybe get, get taken on it and they'd be given a salary. But it wasn't very much. Um, it was very, very top-heavy with, uh, with men and there really wasn't uh, a lot going for um, uh, young women apart from in promotions, whether it's TV promotions, international promotions, um, uh, radio promotions. That was about the only thing open to them. Yes. You know, I, I don't think I ever saw once a female A&R person um, oh, probably not actually. But, and there was um, always there was always a woman in finance called Shirley as well. I've always found that. I don't know why. It must be part of the job spec, wasn't they? Go and speak to Shirley in finance. She'll sort out your invoice. And off yeah. you'd go. There you go. And she would with great with with without even a smile. <laughs> Did that change at all? Because obviously, you know, kind of coming into the music industry world at the sort of late 70s where it was probably looking back on it, it was quite horrendous really and then I mean by the the kind of the 80s I don't know it's a bit of a blur isn't it but then 90s became a bit of a lad culture you know there was the kind of the rise of the I suppose the loaded magazine and sort of a swagger wasn't there there was a confidence I mean it was the John Major years wasn't it let's face it before team Tony sort of took over did you find that did you feel happier in the 90s than the 80s? Um, no, no, I didn't feel happier. Um, uh, it was... I don't know. I think it's it's to do with... Um, um, you know, you're knocking on a bit and there's very, very few things that you can say, yeah, I like that. I'll go out and buy that. Yes. Um, yeah, so probably turning into a grumpy old bastard. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. how it felt. Yes, it is, and cynical as well. Well, I'm just talking for myself. Um, but yes, did you 
then stay in that particular college on 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 running because this is the record label Electric Honey, wasn't it? Yeah. Did you was this a kind of a, a kind of a collaboration with various other people from was it Creeping Bent Records and also the Bluebells? Yeah, um, we had um, Ken McCluskey from the Bluebells. Um, he joined up, um, and it was actually myself that suggested Douglas McIntyre yeah. from Creeping Bent, and um, so pretty soon there was three different labels uh, running. Um, uh, Douglas's was uh, dance orientated, and um, Ken's was kind of more world music. Yes. The students, the students at that time. I mean, they must look back at that as a golden period for being in college. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think they really had any. Um, uh, sometimes uh, some of some of the subjects which were necessary um, uh, in the oh the, the lower echelons. So that you know there was a degree, and then there was one below a degree, and there was even one below that. Sometimes they had to take subjects which God. No one needed to take, you know, but um, the bulk of it was music industry management, music industry law, music industry marketing, um, music industry promotion, um, music industry touring. Yes. And I just knew all about that, and I could witter on for hours. Did you find, you know, because obviously with, with especially the band, you know, there's the kind of endless um, compilations and anniversaries coming up. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Did you navigate the world of publishing and ownership of music OK then, or was that something that you just learnt the hard way? Learnt the hard way. Yeah. Um, publishers, most of them are bastards. <laughs> has to be said. Yes. Is it because they know what they're doing and the artist doesn't? Yes. <laughs> yes. When when you when you do that that whole publishing thing, um, only the bands or the artists which had powerful managers who knew what they were doing would end up with a fairly okay publishing deal. Um, we didn't. Right. We had a shit deal. An absolutely shit deal. It was 50-50 between Mackenzie, myself, and the publisher. So he was getting twice as much as Bill and me. Um, and it was um, uh, it was on receipt as opposed to at source. Right. Do you, know I, do you know what I mean by that? No. Well, I could guess, but let's... So I don't sort of go away with the wrong information. What does that actually boil down to? Well, if it's at source, that's the better one, because then you're getting paid if you are getting played uh, on the radio in Germany 
and you're selling records, which you've written songs in Germany, then you get paid at source in Germany. Right. If it's on receipts, it's what comes back into Britain after Germany's taken their slice. Right. So you get a kind of a double dip. And, um, you know, yeah, there was a lot of bands um, that they didn't, they didn't realize there was a difference. Yes. You know? Absolutely. But, um, yeah, Warner Brothers and Beggars, Beggars Banquet, they were very good, very good to us. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, because, I mean, obviously with all the kind of reissues that come out and kind of interest in the band, is it the case that you're sort of probably getting, earning more with it now than you did at the time? Um, let me see. Uh, I'll tell you what I earned the, the most money from um, was uh, writing a couple of cheesy pop songs for a boy band. Oh, nine one one. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I was getting like fifty thousand pounds here and ninety thousand pounds there. You know, and you knew damn well they weren't going to last. Um, and by the time they were they were actually making records that sold, they were almost too old. They were twenty three. You know, for a boy band. That's old. Yeah, that is. That's that's. They're just not going to appeal to the eleven-year-old. Well, they shouldn't do really, because that's a bit weird. Yes, nine eleven was your was your sort of was your pension plan, yeah. really, wasn't it? God damn, that's um, amazing. Well, not anymore. But in just in the space of one year, you know, just vast amounts of money came in from, um, uh, you know, no, that's what I call music. Um, if you had one of these, one song on, uh, say, the Chris, they did three three um, albums a year of Now That's What I Call Music, mm. but the Christmas one always sold two million. So if you had a share of that, you know, you were getting a lot of money. Yes, I kind of, and yeah, the soundtrack one is incredible, isn't it? I think... Some of those films that became huge, that people just went, oh, just get, give us 12 songs, you know, it doesn't really matter. But if, I think one or two, either artists or the publishing company just went, oh, fantastic, it's the biggest selling soundtrack ever. So, um, yeah, I think yeah. That's, that's that's always kind of, I think dirty, things like Dirty Dancing and stuff. But yeah, now I, now that's music. God, the Christmas special, that sounds like a... Sonic delight, really, doesn't it? Yeah. So did you, I mean, because this was kind of like decades ago, which is kind of odd. Did you stay in the kind of the college, you know, lecturing role or did you change or move into other bits no, and pieces? No, I was there from 92 to, oh, till 2010. And then I said, right, that's 18 years. That's enough. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, you know, I just said, no, I think I've I've done enough of this now. Yes. And did you then, as we got into the, I don't know what they call it, teenies, did you go back into music production? Um, yes, a, a little bit, but, you know, not really. Um, because it, it's just so damn hard 
um, to get anything, uh, any songs uh, that you've written, to get them away, to get them placed. Very, very difficult indeed. Yeah, I could imagine, actually. Does that mean that you you just literally... I mean, because you've got all this kind of experience and, and talent and skill and, and, you know, amazing amount of, you know, having that kind of wisdom as well. Did you ever keep sort of trying to write songs or sort of still... Oh, yeah, oh, always writing. You know, I mean, um, 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 I wrote... Um, uh, about five or six songs with that Stephen Lindsay guy who used to be the singer in The Big Dish. And um, and I did a couple of things with Craig Armstrong and what else? Um, yeah, you would just write, you know, with people um, uh, and you just... You waited to see what happened. Was there chemistry there? Uh, you can usually tell within about half an hour this isn't going to work. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I, more often than not, it worked. Yes. But that's just the first hurdle. Then you've got to get the songs placed. And it's just so difficult. Yes. Have you often been somebody who just prefers the collaboration process, as you found with Bill, and then, you know, with your experience as a solo artist, which sometimes was a bit more tricky, especially singing the singing bit. But then, do, do you prefer sort of kind of bouncing off somebody, or just? Yeah, uh, I do. I prefer bouncing off people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because in that sense, I'm very quick to latch onto the nub of the song and you know drawing it out so that you're making the most of just a few minutes yes um, in any one song um yeah that that's never left left me but i just write anything that comes into my head yeah does it be is it is it like um just an addiction would you say being a musician and an artist is is an addiction that's it's it doesn't go away you you can't stop it no no i can't stop it i mean uh i once wrote wrote a song with um a guy who who's his hero was hero was bob dylan and um this guy was probably about oh Ten years older than me, maybe twelve years older than me. Yeah. But lyrics just spewed out of him, and uh, yeah, we um, we wrote a song called uh, "Country Living," and um, it was the chorus was "Country Living, Country Life." Uh, you pause your brother, your mama's your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and we we termed it kind of dark country. Um, you know, so just anything. Yes. I mean, that was the first time I'd written any type of country song. But as with almost all good songs, it was done and dusted in 20 minutes. 
Yes. Often, yes, this, this is where the classic kind of moment comes from. I mean, is, is, yeah. it, is it the case that you're, you're still thinking, I'm still going to write another classic album or another classic, you know, the best work is still to come? I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so, David. Um, it, it, it doesn't feel that way. Um, and, well, put it this way, um, if you get a million streams on Spotify, you get 3,000 quid. <laughs> yes. It's just ridiculous. And, um, you know, the record companies and the publishers they're still making much more money than the artists or the songwriters. Did um, you did you feel, or have you noticed then, uh, over the decades? As, you know, and obviously it comes back, I suppose, a lot to the to the band period. Do you sort of find that you get kind of waves of kind of interest of you know young people and a few older people, but you know people discovering you for the first time? That you think? Oh yeah, um, um, I was in the studio with. the with a band about oh, three months ago and they're called Walt Disco and um, all of them just love the associates um, you know to a man there were six of them I think two were straight two were bisexual and two were gay and I never really knew which was which um, but, you know, I didn't ask. Um, but uh, my son had written a song for them, uh, for an album that's just come out. But, yeah, all of them were associates daft. So, <laughs> do you find... Does, do you and your, 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 your children... Are you a bit amazed at the moment? Because, obviously, you're, you're sort of appearing on a lot of magazines, aren't you? It's on the covers and big articles and people sort of having an absolute curiosity. Has that been quite an interesting experience in the last couple of months, you know, where suddenly it's like... Oh, oh. God, yeah. You know, uh, um, we did this in two, uh, 2016 and it, it was the same sort of thing. Um, but uh, I think, um, uh, you see... You know, we never signed directly to a record company. Everything was a licensing deal. And that means that every five years, um, uh, if they want to license us, then, you know, they've got to come up with 20,000 quid or something. Right. You know, so um, that's happened happily. Um you know, one time we were on V2, and I think that was for 10 years, and then we said, no, that's too long. So from then on, we went five years, five years, and um, I think, hold on, so that's 2015. Yeah, so 2020, uh, we got another option taken up um, uh, to license us. So in 2025, the whole thing will start again. <laughs> I suppose it's quite handy, isn't it, really? Yes, nice, a nice little kind of reminder. I mean, do you sort of collect all the kind of uh, 
the kind of the latest magazines that have kind of appeared because I noticed there's one called Blitz and there was another one called Classic Pop and um, you know both yeah, feet front of me at the moment yeah both featuring sort of like front pages you know an, mm. an amazing amount of detail because the great thing with the band it wasn't just the music it was also the kind of image as well that people are fascinated by you know who the photographer was the cover of the album you know which was the, the 82 yeah. one you know it's it's people love to pour over this stuff and obviously you know capture you were captured on I don't know. There was definitely Tobbard Pops, and were you on the tube? Was that one of the ones that you ever performed on, or was that no? That was um, that was before your time, wasn't it? Actually, um, I can remember. No, we only did Top of the Pops, and we did a slew of European um, uh, shows that you would just sometimes fly in in the morning and fly out the same evening. And you just recorded it and mined to it, and that was it. Occasionally, you'd stay overnight, um, and um, and then go back the next morning. But yeah, um, I think I, I seem to remember doing the Ogre Whistle Test with the Pale Fountains. Oh yes. And, uh, uh, one of the songs we did. Um, oh, what was it? I've just got to be free, free, uh, free. Um, was it Denise, someone? Oh. Oh, God, yeah, that does sound familiar, doesn't it? It's a, it's a yeah. ha- happy, clappy song, isn't it? Yes. Uh-huh. I, I, Denise, someone, I can't remember her name. Um, and coincidentally... I think Bill did the same song on the whistle test. Right. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Mm. That's kind of yes because I know there's this small publisher called is it the um, it's called Hanging Around Books which they produce these almost like fanzines, don't they? And they've just done one. Yeah, they're, they're on the, photozines. Yeah. Yes, and there's one with yeah, black. They're and white. put together by uh, a friend of mine called Ronnie Gurr, and um, he's. Uh, the next one that's coming out, or is just out, is one about Sparks. You know, the male brothers. Yes. And um, that's his... So he's done... That'll be his 60th edition. So he's been basically doing one every month for five years. God, that's a labour of love, isn't it? I think I've bought a few. I, I'm, I haven't sort of looked at the website lately, but um, yes, I do like them. I find that they've kind of got quite a charm and a sort of innocent charm of a, of a previous period, really, isn't it? I mean, if, yeah. you, if you could have said something to your like 16, 18 year old self starting out, is there anything that you would have just whispered in their ear as they were about to launch into the kind of the next phase of their creative life? Um, uh, God, I, I don't know. It's, it, everyone's different. Mm. Everyone's got not a different agenda necessarily, but they've got a different way of doing things. And each and every one of us, it's, it's very, very personal. Um, yeah, I think that would be quite hard. 
you yeah. know, to um, have, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I feel reluctant doing that. Yes. Um, because, uh, I think maybe a 17, 18, 19 year old, how the hell do you relate to that? I mean, when I was 17, I thought people who were 23 were ancient. Yeah, no, we couldn't imagine getting to 23. You know, 23? Really? Um, so the last thing they want is some 63-year-old bloke um, um, giving them a... a, a uh, an earworm about anything. Yes, this is true. Yes, no, absolutely. No, it's always a bit, a bit of a tricky one. I guess it's, um, yeah, just one or two times people often say, oh, I wish I hadn't smoked so much, or I wish I hadn't, I wish I'd enjoyed it a bit more when we were doing it because we were all a bit angsty at the time and, and, you know, things like that. I mean, or I wish I'd learnt what I was signing when we signed for something. I suppose those, those kind of classic classic moments really aren't they so but looking yeah. but looking forward do you have kind of I mean obviously in the last two years we've had the great lockdown I mean do, have you have you got sort of work that you still want to sort of archive and or new work that you think I oh, really must try and sort of get that recorded and put out there um we see uh you just keep going you know that's that's all you can do you just keep going I mean, there's not going to be a day goes by where I don't pick up a guitar, noodle away, or sit at a keyboard and noodle away at that. You know, you just do it to see what comes out. Yes. You know, and I think that's uh, that's about the best you can hope for. Um, uh, you know? Absolutely, that is that is the best. Anyway, look, I'll just um, I'll just say thank you ever so much for giving me the le- these couple of extra sessions because it's been great to hear not just about your early years, but obviously the solo. Yeah. And then when you mentioned the label, and I thought, oh God, yes, the label as well, and Bella Sebastian, the Snow Patrol, and Biffy. I thought oh, I must try and hear about that. But um, but this has been amazing. If you want. I can when I put this together. I can always send you a link, and you can always put it on your your social media platform sites because people love. To oh hear. yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. I will do. But it's been amazing, and it's been lovely to, um, yeah, talk and and um, hear how it how it went and everything with you because um, it's yeah. an amazing story. But um, thanks again, and do keep in touch. This has been brilliant. But I won't I won't bore you anymore because um, you'll think, God, this is just he just doesn't stop talking. Um, <laughs> Okay, look, take care of yourself. But, you know, huge, huge, you know, thanks for all this. This has been brilliant. And have a lovely day and um, take care of yourself, Alan. Okay, then. Thanks, dude. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of a very long interview. But I enjoyed it. And that's basically the only thing that matters. Um... Indeed. Right. Yes, if you got that far, well done. Um, You deserve a house point. So that's me in conversation with the amazing singer, songwriter, creator, um, Alan Rankin. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that. That's been epic. Um, If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook... 
Instagram, Twitter, I know Twitter, I imagine that one, um, on C86 show, just look for it, you'll find it. And um, also, all these have been archived, aren't you lucky? So, uh, Indie Pop, feel your boots, and there's quite a few on David Bowie, or related ones anyway. So, um, have a great week, stay safe. <laughs>